0: Here we are, and welcome to another South by Southwest special from the Friday Night Movie Podcast. Today we have something quite amazing. We are going to speak to Toby Ames, the director of a film that Variety called that gave just gave a stellar review to and called Near Perfect. I think most people who see this movie are going to call it a perfect documentary about the band. King Crimson into the king into the court of the Crimson King, where Toby Ames manages to open the doors on one of Rock's most elusive and complex characters, Robert Fripp, um, which is just amazing work I think as a documentarian. But also there are beautiful and warm interviews with so many of the different musicians that have come through this band that is known for its. I would say complex math rock but the, the beauty that they see in the music really shines through notably Bill Rieflin, who I I was a fan of through his work in R.E.M. and had a chance to even meet him once and the fact that Toby captures some incredible moments with him is just a, a huge huge accomplishment so Toby Amy's congratulations on the film and the reception that it's getting and thank you so much for being with us here today.
1: Thank you very much, Shai. Can I just check? Is it right if I smoke in your house?
0: Yeah, it, you, well, virtually yes. That's totally fine. Okay, virtually. Right, so I'll continue to do. This, and then. and and you know, if you're willing to talk to us about the film, believe me, um, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a, there's a lot, lot of, of a rules lot we, we can bend for do. you. There's a lot of rules will <laughs> let you. There's a lot of things will let you do. So, sweet, I, you. thank you. Um, I'd love to start with the overall approach you took to storytelling in this film. Uh, I I think that there are. More and more these days, especially with the way commercial things work, there are rock documentaries that read kind of as propaganda films. I won't mention who they are, but, but there are certain times when the artist is involved where it turns out fine, and there are other times where the artist is involved, and you're kind of suspicious about what, what was allowed. You paint this incredible complex picture that is, you know, far from, uh, you know, like I said, a propaganda piece, um, but... Uh, but it also captures this beautiful essence. Um, And at times it's adversarial. It looks like you're taking a beating from your subject in Robert Fridt, who's almost like trying to outsmart you and undo you at different times during the film. How do you go about cracking the nut, opening the door, getting the subjects to um, trust you um, uh, and and open up?
1: You know that bit in The Silence of the Lambs where... um... Uh, Clary Starling goes to interview Hannibal Lecter and he basically says if you give me a piece of you you can have a piece of me Um, I sort of <laughs> That's amazing. I'm not, gonna, that's, I'm, that's... Not, I'm not gonna draw a comparison between Hannibal Lecter and any of my subjects. <laughs> no, no. I'm no. not going to draw a comparison between <laughs> Hannibal Lecter and any of my subjects. But I think you have to I think I think if you if you're going to somebody and you're asking them to give you something that will become part of your creative process, your art, if you like, and uh, you want them to give you something that is meaningful, and true, and personal, then um, you you have to be prepared to do the same yourself. More than I think, and that's the sort of so so it's it's very important for me to create a basis of trust in my subjects, um, and that that can have to do with what you're willing to give them what you're willing to expose about yourself and above all it's about recognizing that this there's a this there's a there's a vulnerability people get when when they begin to feel that you might see who they really are you know mm. um and but but that's the most beautiful thing to put on screen is is people as they are you know the, you know the, the, the sort of that you see people's unique humanity and at the same time you know in a in a crazy way it's the uniqueness that is universal that's where we start to recognise similarities between other people and ourselves is when we see you know you see the true person on screen so. So because that's what I want, I'm willing, I suppose, to uh, to to be pretty diligent uh and patient um in in sort of in getting that because you know most of, so much of what it is about is not about the actual film Um it's about the relationships that you develop. Um so I guess that's that's how it works when it works. It doesn't always work. You know, some people won't want to talk to you and some people wanna won't won't want to open up.
2: They
0: will do that over time, you know. It works tremendously here. Sorry, Becky, go ahead.
2: So on that, on that note, you build the trust with your subjects. I see because you're also willing, you know, as you explained, you're willing to give something of yourself, but over the course of a project, and I don't know how long it took you to film this, but I imagine quite some time, how do you, what is their motivation for getting involved in it? And then how do you sustain that throughout the course of filming so that you can continue to dive deeper with them?
1: Um, I think that, I mean, there were, there are so many individual characters in this movie that it's hard to make a generalization about you know, what they all want to get out of it. Um, but but broadly speaking, and this doesn't just apply to the members of King Crimson, everybody wants their story to be known, I think, in one way or another. Um, so if you create an environment in which they feel like they're going to get a fair shout, as it were, um, then they're more inclined to, to give you... Um, a story. I suppose that King Crimson is a is a commercial entity as well as an artistic entity so it you know that that the same reasons that they would allow me to film them for the documentary would apply to the same reasons why they might do an interview you know with Rolling Stone or the NME or, or something so so there is that kind of basic default um and then uh, somebody said after the screening last night something that was really nice. She said it's less they're, they're, they're less interviews than they are conversations, um, and that's something that's a technique I picked up um, at, at MTV, I suppose, because you know when I was a, a video jockey, you're on screen with your um, your subjects. Um, And so you're sort of put on this slightly more equal footing, although I've got to, you know, I want to make clear that compared to being somebody who's really good at playing the guitar, being a stupid video jockey is not really on a par with my... (laughs) I don't think there's similar achievements.
0: Uh, no, but we yeah. miss the, we do miss the VJs. The days of the VJs were very important to us. So don't I undersell it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really nice when, when culture is contextualized in that way. I think it, you know, I, I, I sort of, there are certain VJs I really don't miss and some of them personally <laughs> I really don't miss. But, um, <clears throat> but yes, yeah, so there, there's something nice about having a human context for, for the music and stuff. But anyway, yeah, so, so, so oftentimes, rather than sitting there going, tell me about your new album or, you know, where'd you get your ideas from? Or how did this album come to be or whatever? Um, you just have a conversation. And I think a crucial part of having a conversation and being, if you like, a good conversationalist is remember, remembering to shut up and listen, um, you know, and there's a certain amount of, of that that I do. I mean, it's like, I wince when I listen back to the, the stuff i shot, because I feel like I'm constantly interrupting people. And talking over them and stuff and but part of that is is conversations this happens with human beings you know normal conversations we're always talking over each other but so you do sometimes you just have to go you know i'll just wait
0: and see what happens <laughs> at, at the risk oh, that,
2: of talking over both of you God, i do please, want to say that um, it's great i truly enjoyed the the choice to include your voice in the film and it's actually not something I I see very often in the documentaries I watch, where the you hear the filmmaker's voice in those com- in conversation and asking the question so consistently. Like you might hear a you know a clarifying word, and a lot of the times you know it's just that direct to camera, as if they're talking to the audience. And and I and I actually think it brought so much intimacy, and brought you closer to the characters to be having those conversations through you with your voice. And so I just wanted to say how much I appreciated that, um, that, that choice and hearing you speak about it, it all ties together so well and it, and it makes so much sense why you, would, why you would do it that way.
0: And I'll add the vulnerability that you show, it's not like you only showed clips of yourself being the best interviewer ever, <laughs> or which I mean, you're a great interviewer, but you saw these moments where I think if I were talking to one of my rock heroes, and I didn't ask the right question, and they stuck it to me. I, I would be mortified. And and you did it fearlessly when when y- when you sort of jostled with with Robert Fripp a couple of times. And I thought that was a beautiful and brave and very very humanizing move that you did.
1: Cheers. I think that like um, I, are you guys familiar with
0: the the films of Ross McElwee? I am not. Becky might be. She's much.
2: What are the titles? I don't know. I'm not the best doc
0: filmmaker. Right. I'm hey, not going to lie. Film... Oh, Toby, we who lost
1: you there for a second. The oh, sorry. Can you hear me now? Oh yeah, back, back okay. again. Okay. So it's yeah, Sherman's March is ostensibly about is about uh, um, General Sherman's March through the South. It's a historical documentary. Mm. Mm-hmm. He got some money. From the Smithsonian for it, and um, but then it starts with him saying, "I've got this." He's you see him wandering around this loft. Um, he's got this very laconic voice, um, and he sort of talks about how um, he also just got dumped by his girlfriend, um, and so he's sort of he's much more concerned about like being alone and lonely and wanting, you know, wanting to be in a relationship again than he is about what he's meant to be doing, and. That, that film's always been, I saw that film when I was, mm, I don't know, 21 or something, and it's, um, it's just such a beautiful film, but it's like the, the thing that he gets so right, you know, is the balance of telling you enough about him, that you're kind of immersed in it, but at the same time, it's not it's not one of those like, on my journey, I wanted to discover sort of things, and so I've sort of stolen a bit of Ross McElwee's approach, and then I, I paired I, you know, the goal for me is always to have as little as me of me as possible in the film, but on occasion, it's very handy to have a bit of me because I think it's my job in that context to sort of act as the audience would. Yeah. Um, and and I don't think anybody really thinks of themselves as superhuman and never making any mistakes. So you're right; it's really painful to put in the mistakes, um, but. I think it makes for a better film where you sort of, you know, the, the sort of flaws and so on are, are part of the process. And it's like, I don't go into these films thinking I know it all, you know. I sort of go in like, like when I started making this film, I hadn't listened to all of the albums, you know. I hadn't read the big biography and so on, because I wanted to sort of be, um, not only did I want to avoid doing the work, um, I also <laughs> you know, conveniently, simultaneously, it meant that I sort of entered that space um, as somebody who didn't really know much about the band. So that, like, some of the questions are really kind of, you know, from the musician's point of view, they're like, how many fucking times have I answered this question before? But it's sort of like, you know, I made the film for people who don't know about King Crimson, really.
0: Um, well, well, I would so say.
1: And for fans, you know, so.
0: Oh, sorry. Oh, I, oh no I was sorry the delay there but um I would say you know I I've, I love music docs rock docs whatever you want to call them I think the best ones are the ones that cover the rudimentary such that anyone who has never heard the band in your their life will come away intrigued and and, and invigorated about learning more about this band but that the old fans won't come in and say I've heard this all before and and again I, I don't want to speak you you don't have to speak ill of your colleagues but i would say for example i feel like scorsese's um uh no direction home to me was a lot of very good interview gets but it didn't tell anything new as a bob dylan fan for me and so i was watching this very long documentary but it was hitting the usual beats of folk to going electric Uh, i'm not i'm not a king crimson you know ologist but i i felt like you know i i I don't feel like I was just getting the typical King Crimson, and that had to do, I think, with your choice to. Um, and I and I read I've read that you've said that your choice not to do this is like the chronological story, but have it be built more around the interviews and the insights from the humans. Um, uh, you know, I compare that to uh, one of my favorite. Rock Docs, which is Beyond the Lighted Stage, the, the film about Rush, but this is on equal footing in, in greatness, if not more. And um, but why choose, you, you, you. Um, uh, you know, your choice of that style to tell the story that way. I'd love to know more about choosing that style. Like you are taking a band that maybe not a lot of people have heard of. The hardcore fans will show up, I'm sure. But you're taking it away from that much more simpler album by album approach that makes a beyond the light of stage, very accessible.
1: Uh, hmm. Well, I just uh, I'm not interested in um, like filming a Wikipedia article, and I figure that like if you want, you know, that if you want to know about, if you want to know the history of King Crimson, Sid Smith, you know, literally wrote the book on it it. is a brilliant, very long, in depth tome, um, you know, which is. Both satisfied and annoyed people in enough measure that you know that there's a lot of truth in there, um, and so that already exists. Um, and you know, it's a, one of the maxims of cinema: is show, don't tell. And I'm not, I'm not interested in telling people what to think, and I'm not interested in telling people something that they already know or something that they can find out in two minutes on the internet. You know, there's no point in that. What I want to do is put on screen things that sort of resonate with human beings and and even if they don't specifically, you know, tell you everything you need to know in a sense that you get the you get the experience of something and you sort of you understand things from watching watching how and where people say things as much as what they're actually saying and so on. So and and you know when Robert my spoke about making the film originally, he was like, I don't want to see a bunch of old farts, you know, sitting down talking about the bad old days or whatever. You know, as he said, he said, you know, those kind of films, it feels like the dead have been brought forth and remain unburied. Um, so, and what I think is totally brilliant about the current iteration of King Crimson is they're all getting on, you know, I'm 54 and I, I think, you know, my back hurts and there's just, you know, lots of things. I, I sort of think twice about getting a low angle shot now because I don't want to have to get up again and so on. Um, <laughs> and, and, and these guys are older than me. And they're doing this work, which is incredibly complicated, and it's so draining, both psychologically and physically. That you know, I was sort of open-mouthed in awe of not only their skill, but also their diligence and their, their perseverance and their um, their stamina. You know, to be able to do it, it's quite it's quite a thing to watch. Um, and I think you learn so much. Rather than you know knowing that Mel Collins also played with Camel and and Dire and so on, seeing him get on the bus, you know, and having carrying his own luggage and stuff, and, and hearing the, the just the effort that that involves, it tells you so much about what he's going to do when he goes on stage and
0: plays for three hours, and that's, and being short of breath, you know. That's that's so true, and that has so and that is so much of why I think. It, this brings so much to the conversation about them. It, it, it allows us to see, see so much more. There's this moment at the beginning, I, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like there's a bookends in the film is at early on in the film, there's this almost like meditation from the different musicians on silence and the conversation about um, not getting in the way of the music versus just not getting in the way of yourself And then towards the end of the film, there was this remarkable moment where I actually wasn't sure if I if like something the stream had messed up on my on my on my phone uh, or on my device because you ask Robert for a question about uh, his conversation with a mentor uh, when he was getting into school, I believe, and it hangs in silence just on his face for what felt like an eternity, and the patience that you had there felt like you were almost showing us that you were, I wouldn't say learning because it sounds like you you knew this, but you understood what they were saying and you were doing the filmmaker version of what the musicians did. Am I reading too much into it or am I on the, am I on the right track? Uh,
1: I think you're sort of on the right track um, because... My default position is I don't really know what I'm doing, and and anywhere, any time I go into a situation, going right, I'm going to do this, it goes horribly wrong. So I, I I'm I'm sort of slowly learning that the best thing to do is be is be open and be adaptable, and sort of as you know as ready as possible. Things, um, but I'm not again, I'm not there to impose my thoughts or even my aesthetic necessarily on other people. I just think that, like, when I was making my first feature film, The the Man Who's mind exploded, a friend of mine said to me, she said two things that really resonated with me. Her name's Dolly Thompson. She was an artist. Um, She was a painter. She is an artist. But she said to me, she said, it's your job as an artist to change the shape of the medium that you work in. And And she also said, you know, you're working with an extraordinary subject and you should let him be the guide as to the shape that your film takes, makes, you know, it's like form follows function. Um, and, and with this, uh, you know, I... Enormous ego, and and just yeah, just sit there and listen and and be prepared for eventualities. I, I'm not saying you know you referred to them as fearless, everyone. I was absolutely terrified when I was experiencing that thing with her because I didn't know what was going on, you know, and and so yeah, it's it's just a question of sort of like you know you tr- without 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 making the film sort of deadpan. You need to or I need to just, um, you know, let the camera sit and observe as much as possible um, wow. and, and not intervene necessarily. But that, throughout that whole thing, I wanted to say something, you know,
0: So like for once I shut up. It's, it, I think it's, it, for a band that makes so much complex music, that moment of silence is a defining moment in the film. I think, I, I, I assume you're going to be getting questions about it yeah. from everybody um before before we go to our games i'd like
1: probably there was a brilliant bit
0: oh sorry go ahead i i didn't
1: say anything i'm waiting to hear what becky
0: said oh yes becky's question and then we'll play some games um oh the sibling bickering is the best part of the show we're being so we're on
2: such good behavior you've never seen this
0: group behave this way.
2: it's like there's a real adult in the
1: room what's the
0: most annoying thing about shy
2: this is oh, great. We have an interviewer God. on
0: the show. Come on, go for it. The back.
2: most annoying thing about Shy is that he he always one-ups you in terms of being like the best person in the room but it's completely sincere and genuine he's never doing it to one-up you but it you're like oh i heard so and so was sick i texted him he's like oh i sent them flowers and dinner and then i drop by and i walk their dog and you're like
1: and come on dead. man
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're just like but it's completely sincere so it's like you'll never yeah he's just like the best person in the room and it's so irritating when you're his sibling
1: is he by any chance older than you
2: Five years, yeah, five years older than
0: I'm the oldest. Yeah,
2: I'm the. Um, <laughs> but I my question. I like for this you, game.
0: This is I have amazing. a, <laughs> a, a production-related
2: question for you because you talk about you know you're not making a chronological film, which I appreciate so much. I'm so much more interested in these character-driven stories. I'm so much more interested in watching things unfold, you know, in verite style. I absolutely. But what is that like for you in post-production then? If you're not writing your story before you go into it, you're not looking for specific moments of drama. You know, I've worked on docs before. I know how they happen in pre-production and production. Then what is your editing process like?
1: It's an acute suffering for everybody <laughs> involved. I
2: knew you were <laughs> going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> there is no way it's not, but it, but it's you but you manage it, but you manage it miserable. because because it's, it's the <laughs> it's
1: just it's a horrible horrible process, and it's like it's even worse for the editors than it is for me. Um, it's it's just, it's really hard work, you know. And and there was sort of there were two iterations of this film. There was an earlier version, which was called Progrot Pond Scum, set to bum you out, and that was. That was basically made up of all of the good bits that I filmed on, uh, on, on tour with it. So it was about five minutes long. No, um, <laughs> it was, um, but it just didn't have any narrative structure, and it got really, really dis- sort of discombobulating after a while because it just was bouncing around. But it's funny, and it's like stylistically, it's really interesting. But it just it didn't really hold your attention um it was sort of like you know that feeling you get if you've like been on instagram or twitter for too long and you're like that's just an hour and a half gone and i just no, i know nothing you know after that except that i'm perfectly oh, yeah. capable of wasting yes. my time you know yes we do um, know that feeling so so it's it's a sort of it's a question i think you've just got to like you have to you sort of deep dive into the experience of the thing that you're making the film about um and then you sort of, you you walk away with that, with your big bag of footage. Um, and then you sort of, you know, your, your thinking becomes more and more sophisticated the more and more you look at all this footage and, and some things start to resonate for you and other things you think that, you know, you sort of discard them because they're less important and they're not talking to the sort of core themes. So, so I normally talk to an editor and sort of talk about roughly what I think, you know. Um, in, particularly in terms of the themes of the film, and and, and time time is a is a uh, an obsession of mine anyway, um, and and so I knew this film was about time in lots of different ways, and then of course there's a there's a distinct link between time and death, so so sort of the, and obviously mortality because Crimson's lost so many of its members, you know. Um, it's a huge part of, of what the band is now um, to say nothing with the fact that a lot of its core audience are getting on as well so they sort of you know it's the, the theme of mortality is a very is a very strong one so you know you talk to the editor about that and then so certain certain clips have stronger resonance because they they, they directly address um, those issues and so on and then you you know, you work out your your narrative themes, but but not you know, I think I think at, at the risk of sort of sounding a bit sort of you know mumbo jumbo-y about the whole thing, I think I think you just you you sort of have to like divine from the material what the film is gonna be. And I think material slowly begins to tell you what the film is, and you, you try things and you put them together and they either work or they don't, or they take you off into a different place. You know, Chris, one of the great things about editing is oftentimes you're not you, you, don't, you don't know the impact that putting two pieces of material together is gonna have. Um, so but the key thing is really is to work with really, really great editors. You know, the editor I had on this one, Molly Huddleston, has worked with some fantastic um Observational directors like Kim Longinotto and Sean McAllister, and so on. And so, um, even though I'm 54, I think of myself as sort of quite a junior uh, documentary maker. So I work with somebody who's worked with some of the best, and and he's one of the best editors in the world. And so, his kind of, you know, his experience and and the sort of number the number of solutions to problems that he's got at his fingertips. Uh, because he's done it for so long, you know, there's sort of more than than certainly many younger editors might have. And um, he also um, he's just got a great sensitivity, and and that's that to me is core of good filmmaking. If you're going to make films about people, um, is you just want to see real life human beings up on screen. I think that's why we go into the cinema. Is we we want to see see ourselves reflected back. Um, in in you know in different ways by looking at how other people you know face face their lives and experience their lives.
0: Wow. And and I think in terms of mortality, but the jokes are really what matter in the film to me. <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 well, that's a good segue to the what the jokier part of our podcast, because as you just give us this like beautiful um, reflection on on mortality, which really does, I mean, it really does thread through the film, including I, I guess was that was that Bill Riefland's last interview or, or one of his last interviews. It was such a
1: I, I don't know, but it was um, it was the last interview I a discussion conversation it, I a, a,
0: a really. It was it was really um, special that you were able to capture that much with him during that during that time I think I'm sure there are many people that are very grateful that that you of, of the of the footage and also the the humor and the charm and and it, the way he talked about this very difficult time was was pretty incredible yeah.
1: that, that... I'm, I'm very grateful to him for, for, for giving me so much of his time and being so generous with it you know some it was a privilege to spend time in this company
0: yeah um so as we segue from the sublime from we will... death into jokes now we'll go into ridiculous <laughs> so as part of your storied history and your mtv history you you did work on trl correct
1: uh i like to think of having uh, sort of more in terms of me having invented trl
0: oh okay um <laughs>
1: no 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 that's a joke i worked oh. on a program called mtv live which was a precursor to trl Got but it. my understanding is that, like, they sort of MTV Live had um, some unplanned-for chaos in it, um, some of which I might have been responsible for, um, and it was a it was quite fun when it was chaotic, but most of the time it was like being trapped in an infomercial, okay. um, and. I was, to be honest, a lot happier to be out of it. And I certainly would not have been a happy bunny in um, TRL.
0: Okay. Well, well, then TRL that's going to make this game evening. even more delightful. Okay. So, <laughs> so we are now playing, because you're going to kind of get to retroactively wreak havoc on TRL then. Uh, huh. We are going to play our signature game. Our signature game is called Buy, Rent, and Meh. That's the official okay. rating system of the podcast. Buy right. being the highest, rent being, I would rent it like a video. And meh can be however you define your meh. It can be right. the lowest, it can be indifference, right. it can be mischievous. So okay. we're going we're gonna to posit the following question to you, and each answer is allowed to have one of those values, the buy, the okay. rent, or the meh. Okay? All right. So if you could go back, whether it's to TRL or to MTV Live, and you could program one of these three prog rock bands to play in that era, you know, in that peak era of MTV Live, okay, whatever phase you want to pick. Here are the three, okay? Mm. Jethro Tull, and it could be like Codpiece and, you know, uh, Flute. You can can skip
1: Jethro Tull. That's not going to happen.
0: Okay. Rush.
2: I couldn't agree more. But that's, that's <laughs> another love, that's conversation one, that's one about things that annoy us about rather making then, us listen to Jethro Tull for hours on end as children.
0: And then Rush uh or, or and Peter Gabriel erogenesis so like dressed like plants and aliens and all that stuff. So which order would you enjoy and the reason why you put them on? That's up to you. It could be to again wreak havoc. It could be because you actually think they'd play well, or because you'd like to educate the audience. But which one of those would be your top ranked your buy to be on on MTV Live or TRL?
1: I really hate Jess <laughs>
0: um,
1: I, um, I I don't really know Rush, but they always seem um, too busy. Um, and um, I also I was brought up by punks. I wasn't. I was. I was too young to be a first generation punk, but I was sort of adopted by some first generation punks. So, like all prog rock was the enemy when I was growing up. Oh, yeah. So it's difficult for me to accommodate any of these uh, suggestions. However, Peter Gabriel, when he was fronting Genesis, looked like he was absolutely nuts. Yeah. So I would <laughs> definitely buy Peter Gabriel period Genesis. To perform live on um, T- TRL because you, you you know you wouldn't necessarily know what was not what was going to happen um, and it was the right kind of self indulgence I think
0: that, that that's amazing all right and now this one's this is a less jokier question but it does uh, you know it does go back to film which is the, you know there are a few I would say I don't know if you qualify these as docs but I would say rock movies non uh, nonfiction rock movies well maybe they are fiction but depending on who you ask but uh, it's all fiction shine. <laughs> fair enough um, they actually you know what you're right these are all kind of in there they are actually now when I give you them you're going to really say yeah these are fiction uh, The Last Waltz Gimme Shelter and Don't Look Back
1: not seen any of these films
0: really cool
1: all right I don't then. like documentaries
0: <laughs> that's amazing
1: well also i haven't i haven't for the last i think 3 years i've not watched any any rock documentaries in particular because because i didn't want to i want i want the film to be influenced by king crimson you know um yeah. so so i tried to let that be the thing that's made the shape of it um rather than sort of and, and the irony is, it's not a question of like if I'd seen any of those films or any, you know, I mean I have seen those in music documentaries, but I just haven't seen any for a while um, because I didn't want to have them in my head. Not not only because I have got any problems stealing ideas from people, but I didn't. I it was more I didn't want to be influenced by by them in terms of me going. I don't want it to be like that, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I've heard that that Don't Look Back, I think, is the best of those ones. With regard to the Stones, there was the Stones one you mentioned in there. Yeah, play. Give Me Shelter. Yeah. Um, is that the one with Altamont in it?
0: Yeah, that's the one with Altamont.
1: Yeah, I think, I, I'm not sure if I've seen all of that, but I've definitely seen the really, you know, the awful bit of,
0: yeah. of it. Um,
1: so, and I remember the colors are really nice. So I'll say that. I guess. And then I'm not really qualified to talk about the other two.
0: Okay. All right.
1: Um, cool. Cause I haven't seen them. So, so that was my favorite answer. I love that,
2: is- that that was your answer because I'm really just exhausted of pretending to have watched all the movies I haven't seen. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> sort
1: of like, you know, I came up, I sort of spend a lot of time in the indie world. Um, and there's all the awful kind of hierarchies and one-upmanship and stuff that go on, and it is one-upmanship, it's not one-person, one-up-personship either in in that world. And I just, I'm like, it's like, it doesn't matter, you know, It's you either like it or you don't. And the great thing about music is, you know, when, when it's at its best, you've got an unmediated response to it. You don't have to think about, like, does somebody else think that this is good or whatever? It's like, I like it, I don't care, you know? There's that Kelly Clarkson song "Since You've Been Gone," nice. which is absolutely amazing, and she, you know, you know but she came into this sort of, you know, she was, you know, you can't imagine a more of a cookie cutter approach to how, you know, she appeared.
2: It's true, American Idol. It's
1: true. I'm opposed to all that kind of commodification and, you know, trying to create machinery to make. Better. I was like, I can't. That song is amazing. It's just incredible, you know. Um, sorry, I got off on a bit of a tangent there.
2: I'm I'm just adoring. I'm adoring I'll, everything I'll you're stop, saying. I love everything you say. I, I, <laughs> this is, yeah. I, really? You love, now have like you, a... You
1: may a, say that, Becky, but I bet Shy loves everything
0: I'm saying uh, even more than just you. Just a
2: little bit more. Just a little bit more. <laughs> the now. reason Find why way I love it. it,
0: though, Toby, I want to say is that the biggest compliment you can give in our family... Is by trolling or dragging someone in just the right way, and your distaste for Jethro Tull is now going to become a legendary moment in this podcast. Because here I am sitting down with a documentarian of one of the greatest prog rock bands of all time, and I and I drop my favorite prog rock bands. Although it's a tie between Russian Jethro Tull and you were just like, <laughs> and, sorry about that. No, no, it's great. No, it's, it's oh, I'm perfect. gonna. It's perfect. I will be reminded about this forever. Um, Toby, Amy's. You have made an incredible film. Everyone, whether they, I always tell people, even if you've never heard of the band, if it's a great film, it's going to be captivating. And I,
2: I have to be honest, back. I have never heard of this band. And when Shai said, it's a rock documentary about a band that you've never heard of about music that's just not on your radar. I was like, oh, homework. I mean, this, is, this, is the, this is one of the best, I mean, this is without a doubt one of the best documentaries I've ever seen and one of the best films I've ever seen. It, I oh, I I was flipping favorite. out watching that's it. I am not kidding. I think this movie is truly phenomenal, and everyone should see it. And it and it and it feels uh, everything you were just talking about throughout the whole interview about giving us information if we ha- if we don't know the band, and then it just being so much more deeper and richer than that because it's not this chronological bullet point of the list of accomplishments. It's a much deeper, richer film than than any any music doc I've seen. So I can oh, at least those, leave those it there.
1: Really, really sweet of you to say thank you. I mean, they're an extraordinary band and they're also an extraordinary group of people. You know, so so whilst it this is by no means an easy film to make, but the raw material that I was working with was always there. You know, that's the thing, is that like that's why I effectively you know, I felt able to make the film twice if we you know made the first session. It's like it's not quite, it's not doing it. So we're gonna have to start again. But but I knew I knew it was there, You know, just knew that I hadn't found it in the first instance. So um, you know, that if there's a secret, it's you know, it's in the casting, it's finding the right people to work with, I think. Um, and they've also been a great organization to work with, too. So, you know, their attitude has always been like, just make the art and we'll work out how to make it work after that so that really means, but it means a lot to me and it's also you know if you've been to any concerts with your brother you might have noticed that the prog rock fans tend to be largely male um and and so but for me this this music is it's not it's not it's not you know, necessarily it's sort of it is quite, you know, sometimes it does get a bit nerdy and so on. But there is a there's a there's a sort of passion to it that I think um, that, that when you're exposed to it in the right way really resonates in a way that I don't think people necessarily think of when they think of the, the genre. But, but Robert would be the first to sort of dismiss know, the notion that King Crimson were a prog band, because I think if he, if he ever had any, any enthusiasm for the term at all, he was interested in it because it was progressive, you know, so the idea of change and so on. And I think, I think when it becomes prog and it becomes a genre, there's a danger that, that it can sort of be set, set, you know, there's no change and there's no, no growth. Um, and it's, you know, if you will pardon the pun, it's like it's sort of been stuck in aspect. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think it's, I think that that is something that maybe just it makes King Crimson distinct from many of the other bands in, in that genre is there is this sense of, you know, as Bill Bruford says, change is what the band is about.
0: Yeah. And you capture that and you captured the deep value of that so beautifully. Well, Toby Ames, thank you so much for being here. In the Court of the Crimson King is now doing the festival thing, but where can people follow it? So the moment it's available to the public, they can they can um, see it.
1: I'm not sure we've launched it yet because I've been a bit too busy. Um, but at the moment we going well, at the moment the best place is the Instagram Instagram account. Got it. Uh, which is just uh I T C O T C K film. Um, then there's also a DGM site, King Crimson, uh, it's King Crimson Twitter feed. So, so all of those things will be updated. But at the moment, the best place is the is the Instagram.
0: Terrific. Well, we'll make sure that's mm. in our show notes for all of our listeners. Brilliant. You can follow us at Friday Night Movie on Twitter and Instagram, mm. FridayNightMoviePod.com. Uh, lots of great South by Southwest content coming. The well, of which is this interview we were able to have with Toby Amies. Thank you so much to our guests for being here.